This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as I noted last week, I, I really, I really love this text. <clears throat> there is a, uh, there's a richness to it serves an important function as we um, proceed and follow Paul's argument. We're going to read the whole section, although we started this section last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us... God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Well, what a great passage. Uh, Let me just make a few um, points as we start uh, this next section. And the the first uh, is that as we come to this passage, especially this text tonight, um, 10 through 13, Ironically, throughout, um, especially the last hundred years or so, this text has been read really in just the opposite way that Paul intended it to be read. Uh, certain, certain streams within Christianity and just especially um, charismatic streams have taken Paul's words here and have missed the point of the passage altogether. In fact, um, by missing the point of the passage, which of course means looking at it without its context, it ends up being read in a way, ironically, which would have been right in line with the Corinthians' faulty theology. In other words, the text that we're going to look at tonight has been frequently misread in a way that's more consistent with the Corinthians' triumphalistic uh, and elitist theology than what Paul is actually getting at. Just It's a reminder to us 
that um, the context is everything. You have to read a text in its context. Context is what drives the meaning of any text. And so if you just kind of pluck this up out of its broader context, it can mean something just the opposite of what Paul intended. The uh, second uh, introductory or preliminary thought for tonight's text is that one of the things that we that we also often miss, and this goes with the first point, is that Paul is apparently using very common Corinthian terminology, but yet he's using it in a way where he is radically reinterpreting it. In other words, what we're going to find in this passage is that is that Paul's using words wisdom, mature, teleos, um, uh, quote, spiritual, we'll talk about that next, he's going to use these words, and these are, these are no doubt words that the Corinthians, uh, in a sense, put their theological stock and trade. These were their words. These were the words that they used to describe themselves. Now, Paul's going to use their terminology, but he's going to make it clear that he is radically reinterpreting their terminology in a way that's consistent with the gospel and which is a refutation of their own set of theological presuppositions. The third thing, and this is this is important, <clears throat> There's a word that Paul's going to start using, actually a series of words that are all connected. Spirit, spiritual, and spiritually. All right? So we have uh, spirit as, as a noun, spiritual as an adjective, and spiritually as an adverb. And Paul's going to, actually those words are going to dominate this this passage, and and I'm going to pound on this a lot later, but I just want to say that we also typically misunderstand the way that Paul uses these words. I would argue that when Paul uses the word spirit, the vast majority of times, he's talking about, first of all, the Holy Spirit, all right. Sometimes that gets lost in our translations because it will put a, a lowercase s when it should be actually a capital S for spirit. We'll point some of those out. But my real, uh, my real pet peeve is the use uh, of the word spiritual. Okay. I honestly think that if Paul were to be dropped into the 21st century church, and hear us talk about spiritual, he would not have a clue what we were talking about. And I don't think that translating the words spiritual or spiritually actually capture the idea at all. Because what we typically mean when we say spiritual is really not what Paul had in mind at all. The, the word spiritual would have been in use in Paul's day, but it would have been in use by the Stoics and then later by Gnostics as that which is opposed to or opposite of material. It would be used in a way which... Um, uh, 
was in a sense distanced from the real idea behind the word, and that is, instead of the word spiritual, it should be things pertaining to or related to the spirit. I don't think that Paul has an idea of spirituality that is somehow um, uh, uh, unrelated to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Let me just give you an an example. We have, uh, for instance, Ephesians 1, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every what? Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you know what we do? We go, spiritual blessings. You know what spiritual blessings are? Spiritual blessings are blessings that are unrelated to physical or material blessings. Okay? Wrong. Okay? When Paul says spiritual blessing, he's not talking about that which is opposed to the material. He's talking about blessings which are related to the Holy Spirit. Blessings which come from the Spirit, all right? And so we, we, we use this word spiritual, and of course we, our translations typically don't, don't help us at this point, and we use it in a way that would have been much more at home from a Stoic perspective than from a Pauline perspective, all right? And so we'll, we'll hammer that nail down a little harder as we go through the passage. Okay, so last week we, we started by pointing out that this section, 6 through 16, is really divided up into three portions, and, and, and it all revolves around the theme of wisdom, origin of wisdom, 2, 6 to 9, then the revelation of wisdom, 10 to 13, and the recipients of the wisdom, 14 through 16. And so last week we started off with verse 6, we speak wisdom among the mature, And when Paul talks about wisdom, he is talking about what? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the word of the cross, Christ and him crucified. That's the wisdom of God, all right? And if you don't believe me, go back and read starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, and you can go through and you can see Christ himself, Christ crucified, is the wisdom of God, it's the power of God. Now, it's foolishness to the world, it's weakness to the world, but Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. And so, Paul says, remember, this is the contrast, right? We don't, um, we don't come to you preaching the wisdom of men, but his point in verse 6 is we actually do preach wisdom, but it's real wisdom, It's wisdom that is incarnate in Jesus Christ. It's wisdom which is encapsulated in the message of the cross. And then he says, we speak wisdom among the mature. And I pointed out last week that this particular word would be one of the Corinthians' favorite words because they looked at themselves as incredibly mature. They looked at themselves as um, in a sense, so much belonging to the age to come that their feet barely touched the ground. They had a view of, of, of such a super spiritualized perspective of, of their own spirituality that they looked at themselves as the teleos, the perfect, the mature. And Paul says, oh, we speak wisdom among the mature. The irony is, is that for Paul, the mature is not a term that is defining a spiritually elite group. 
Okay, That's the way the Corinthians understood the mature, the spiritually elite, which, of course, is always me, right? From the Corinthians' perspective, that's, hey, you want to talk about the mature? Look at me. And Paul's going to make the point that the mature are not those that are the spiritual elite, the spiritual triumphalists. The mature actually are just simply those who have the spirit of God, and because they have the spirit of God, they have embraced the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. That's the mature. By the way, that's the wise. It says, we preach or speak wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this world. Uh, Neither the rulers of this world, which are being abolished. And so Paul sets up that contrast. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery which has been hidden, predestined before the ages for our glory. And so the wisdom in a mystery is the message of Christ in him crucified. Why in a mystery? Um, I probably can't emphasize this enough. Mystery is something that is concealed that must be revealed if it is to be known. Okay? This has its Old Testament roots in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4. And so a mystery is not secret knowledge. It's something that's hidden that nobody can know until what? Until God reveals it. And so when you get to the use of the word mystery in the New Testament, you're almost always talking about that which has already been revealed because of the coming of Christ and the Spirit. And so this this mystery or this wisdom, which we speak in a mystery, and then notice Paul says, for our glory, um, he means there that on the last day, as it were, that uh, those who have embraced the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ embrace that predestined wisdom, which had been hidden from all ages, but has now been revealed. You embrace that. That's for your glory. You end up becoming, as it were, a sharer, a, a an heir of God, a joint heir of Christ. And on that last day, uh, your participation in glory will be fully revealed, which means you won't be put to shame, but rather you will be embraced and fully participate in your inheritance. Now that's important because if you're going to believe in a crucified Messiah as your only hope in this age, the world's going to say you are a you're a fool. You're an idiot. I can't believe that you would actually give your life for a message regarding a crucified Messiah who was a, who uh, you said was raised from the dead. Utter stupidity. Can't believe that, you know. And so back to chapter one, people that embrace that, they're the nothings and the nobodies of this world. Boy, but one of these days, that wisdom has been predestined for our glory. All right, which is a reminder to us that the best is yet to come. <laughs> you know, we lose sight of that so quickly, don't we? We lose sight of that so quickly. Your salvation is not about God making you as happy as you possibly can be right now. 
your salvation is about a sanctifying process that leads you to a world in which there is no sin and no curse and no suffering, a a time and an age and a world in which the old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so Paul wants, and, and now, by the way, this is, this, is a, this is, by the way, a backhanded slap to the Corinthians who thought they would have loved Joel Osteen. Let me just say that. Okay. Uh, Paul says, which none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had known or understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so Paul sets up this this really is unreal condition. So if, if the, the, the earthly rulers, in a sense, backed by the, by the principalities and powers that had known what they were doing, they never would have done it. And then Paul makes this comment, just as it stands written, what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, has not entered upon the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so I explained last week that these first three lines, eye and ear and heart, actually explain the human inability to understand God and his ways. And it's that last line, what God has prepared for those who love him, which is a reference to what God is destined for our glory, which is complete salvation in Jesus Christ. So God's wisdom has its origin in God himself, all right? as opposed to the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of this age. It is a predestined wisdom, it is a hidden wisdom, and now it's a revealed wisdom. And now the next section, 10 to 13, Paul's going to talk about how God reveals that wisdom. All right? So the wisdom has its uh, origination in God. It is revealed to us, and Paul's now going to explain how it is revealed. Notice verse 10. For... To us, God revealed through the Spirit. Notice NAS puts them in italics. Um, it's not in the text. The, the, the text just reads, for to us, God revealed through the Spirit. And uh, now, it, it is interesting when you get to verse 10, because this verse could go in a couple of different directions. You might notice that there is a variant reading. It could be for to us, God revealed through the Spirit, or it could be but to us, God revealed through the Spirit. I take it to be for, I take that to be the better reading, in a sense, kind of giving the explanation of what eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor entered the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. For God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, there is another possibility, and I, wouldn't, I don't dismiss this um, completely, and that is verse 10 may be a Corinthian motto. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That could have been something that was common parlance among the Corinthians. Okay. Now, whether that's, whether that's true or not, the point ends up still being somewhat the same. Uh, the to us there is either going to be to us, those whom God loves, i.e. chapter 2, verse 9, prepared for those who love God. Or if it's the Corinthian motto, it could be sort of the privileged esoteric circle of the Corinthian elite, all right? 
But notice, for God has revealed to us through his spirit. If you pay attention, if you read, if you read grammatically, which I highly, highly recommend, you'll realize that in that phrase, there's no direct object. How many of you noticed that? No direct object. It's actually important because what the text says is for to us, God revealed through the Spirit. What's the question then? God revealed what? The text does not actually explicitly tell us. Now, I think that because verse 9 is explanatory, or uh, verse 10 is explanatory of verse 9, um, it is the things which God has prepared for those who love him, which eye cannot see, ear cannot hear, and doesn't enter into the heart of man. And, and so Paul is saying, it's those things, right, those things that God has revealed through his spirit. And notice this, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, Paul is, is going to give us um, some commentary now on what he has just said. And, and, and again, there's an irony in this, in this section, and especially right here. The Corinthians... At least some of them, if not many of them, thought that Paul was a milk preacher. All right? Paul was, Paul was probably not a favorite. Now, he had, he had some that thought he was great, but Paul was probably not a favorite among the Corinthians. And one of the reasons why he wasn't a favorite was because he just preached milk. Paul's just so hung up on the cross. That's all this guy talks about. Just this milk preacher. Just this basic stuff. And when when the Corinthians um, think of Paul, they think of... um, Here's the guy that, you know what? All he did was preach about Jesus. We want meat. We want the deep things of God. Right? You ever heard this? I had a guy come into my office one time and sat down and he said, you know, I, you know, I love your brother. And when it starts out that way, you know, it's not going to go well. And he said, you know, I've been coming here for a number of months now, and I've got to tell you, I've not learned anything new from you. I said, oh, okay. He goes, I mean, I, I study my Bible a lot and um, you know what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the new manna. Can you bring forth some new manna? 
And I'm like, no, I can't. I'm, I'm kind of hung up on old truths. Okay. Um, I mean, I hope that you can learn something while you're here, but don't expect me to teach something new because I've got a little motto that rattles around in my head and it goes like this. If it's new, it probably ain't true. But that's what, that's what we're like, isn't it? I want, I want the deep things of God. I want, I want to learn the deep things. So here's, here are the Corinthians. And what Paul's going to do here in verses 10 through 13, he's going to blow their categories out of the water and say, ha, ah, the spirit searches the deep things of God, the depths of God's wisdom. The spirit gets down into the, into the nitty gritty of the depths of God and the Corinthians their ears pop up and, ooh, ah, now we're talking. And Paul says, hold that thought. And when he says deep things of God here, I think all he's saying, I think, what are the deep things of God? Uh, Paul's going to give an analogy here that kind of helps us. Anthony Thistleton argues that the deep things of God is nothing less than God's knowledge of himself. The depths, he says, of God's own self. He says, nothing lies beyond or beneath God's own selfhood. The depths of God is a comprehensive concept. I love this. For the ungroundedness of God. That is, there is nothing beyond or beneath his own selfhood. And so here's the spirit who is searching the very, uh, as it were, self-awareness of the infinite transcendent deity. Which must mean, at least in part, that the spirit searches his, his plans and his thoughts, um, his plan for human redemption through his son. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God, right? How unfathomable his wisdom, his ways are past finding out, Romans 11. And so here's the spirit who searches the depths of God's own thought. Have you ever thought about God's thoughts? Paul says the Spirit searches out these things. And then then he's going to give an analogy. And notice the way the analogy works. Um, Verse 11, for who knows men except the spirit of man which is in him, thus also no one has known the things of God except the spirit of God. Now most certainly spirit of man has to do with the inner man. And what Paul's doing is Paul is drawing an analogy to help us understand this. And uh, he's going, uh, this this is how you teach by the way, right? From the known to the unknown, 
And so he's, he's going to make an analogy from human existence and experience then to God. This terminology, by the way, the spirit of man or the spirit which is in man uh, is probably borrowed from Zechariah 12.1 where we see this very idea that it's the Lord who forms the spirit of man within him. And very helpful uh, on this on this particular point, Gordon Fee says, at the human level, I alone know what I am thinking and no one else, unless I choose to reveal my thoughts in the form of words. So also only God knows what God is about. God's spirit, therefore, who as God knows the, who as God knows the mind of God, becomes the link to our knowing God also because the next sentence goes on to confirm that we've received the spirit of God. Frederick Godet makes a similar comment. He says, there is in every man a life hidden from all eyes. A world of impressions, anxieties, aspirations, and struggles of which he alone, insofar as he is spirit, that is to say, a conscious personal being, gives account to himself. This inner world is unknown to others except insofar as he reveals it to them by speech. And so he's saying, just like you have thoughts and counsel in your own heart and and, uh, attitudes and emotions and intentions and motives, and, and those are things that only you know. See, right now, I'm the only one talking. So you know what I'm thinking. But I'd give my left arm to know what you're thinking. Sometimes I can tell what you're thinking and just by droopy eyes and heads that look like they're about to fall off of their swivel, right? Hey, but so you're, you're sitting there and, and guess what? You're having thoughts, attitudes, intentions, and there's nobody that knows those things, obviously, except God and you. And Paul turns around and he says, and, and here's, here's the thing is that the spirit of God is the one who knows the things of God. Just like only your spirit knows what's going on inside of you, so the spirit of God is the one who knows what is going on inside of God. It's the spirit who knows the mind of God. It's the spirit who, because he too is infinite and eternal, searches the infinite eternal mind of God. We could say it this way. God is known through God alone. Now Paul then makes the connection. And he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us. We've not received the spirit of the world. Now, I don't think that Paul has anything uh, incredibly profound in, in mind here. I think he's actually just contrasting expressions. This, the spirit which is from God versus the spirit which is from this world. I think it's probably 
similar to what Paul says in Romans 8, 15, where he says, you have not received a spirit of uh, fear, a spirit of slavery, again, um, but you've received the spirit of adoption, Holy Spirit of adoption. So just a contrast here. You've not received the spirit of the world, which, of course, would be a reference to the order of this present age, the mindset of this present age. Uh, That's not what you've received. You don't have to receive that spirit. You're born with it. (laughs) The Germans, who really come up with some fantastic words from time to time, actually have a word, zeitgeist, which means spirit of the age, okay? The spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age, of course, is just a reflection of the thinkings, the, the thoughts and the attitudes and the, and, and the systems of, of, of thought and perspective that mark this present world, right? Paul says, you've not received the spirit which comes from the world, but, but you've actually received... You've received the spirit of God, the spirit who comes from God. Now, here's, here's the amazing link is that when a person becomes born again, what God does, Romans 5, 5, is that he pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And so the spirit of God actually comes, invades, and indwells the life of the child of God. And, and, and by doing that, the spirit of God, who is the only one who knows the thoughts of God and the plans of God, comes and does what? Comes and indwells us so that he may reveal to us, notice this, the things graciously given to us by God. So the Spirit of God has a, has a very, very distinct um, uh, uh, function in our lives, and that is what he does is he, he begins to, to reveal the things that have been freely, interesting, the, the word there comes from charizo, which is our word charis, which comes, which means grace. So the things graciously given to us, the things given to us by God's grace, the spirit of God's role is actually to reveal and to communicate to us the things which God has freely given to us. And what in the world has God freely given to us? He has given to us, in a real sense, he's given to us all things. Because he's given us Christ. He's given us his, his, his only begotten son. He's given us this message of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. He's given to us um, a, a savior who has come and bled for us and died for us and been raised for us. He's given to us a savior and a high priest, an intercessor who is seated at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for us. In a real sense, what the, what the Holy, the Holy Spirit does so many things. But what Paul's pointing out here is that the Spirit's job is to illuminate the person and work and the gifts of Jesus Christ. What does the Holy Spirit delight to do? The Holy Spirit doesn't delight to make people act like Fools, idiots. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't delight in knocking people over. The Holy Spirit doesn't delight in making people bark like dogs. The Holy Spirit doesn't delight in making people hop around like the frauds at Calaveras County fairgrounds. The, The Holy Spirit delights to shine the light on Jesus Christ. By the way, that's how you tell whether the Spirit of God is in something or not. And that is, is much being made of Jesus or is much being made of the Spirit? Because the Spirit, I think B.B. Warfield called him the shy member of the Trinity. The Spirit doesn't delight in bringing attention to himself. He delights in bringing attention to Jesus Christ. And so here Paul says, you know what the spirit does? So here's the spirit who actually searches the depths of the mind of God. God's given us his spirit so that that spirit now, that Holy Spirit is the one who communicates to us all that God has freely given. He is the applier and the reminder of all of our benefits. You ever get a policy, you go to try to make a claim or something and they turn around and tell you, well, that's, that's not covered. What do you mean it's not covered? Didn't you read the terms? Of course I read the terms. Well, you didn't read the terms carefully enough. The Holy Spirit's job, in a sense, is to remind us of all of the precious and magnificent promises that we have in Jesus Christ, all of the precious and magnificent privileges and benefits which we have in Christ. That's what the Spirit of God delights to do. Well, we could go on about that for a while, I think, don't you? Is, is, is there something that, um, that the Holy Spirit likes to do during communion? Think about that. Calvin's view of communion, which I don't necessarily uh, hold to, it still is, is, is quite beautiful in a sense. Calvin taught that, that what happens in the communion service is that the Holy Spirit is active in such a way that we have... Um, spiritual communion with Christ because the Spirit of God, as it were, uh, doesn't bring Christ down to us, but rather takes us up to Christ. What's the Spirit of God doing? Communicating to us the love of God. One Puritan said that the communion service was the Holy Spirit's kiss. Reminder to us of the love of God, a reminder to us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a reminder to us that all of our sins have been, have been washed away, cast as far as the east is from the west. The Holy Spirit delights to remind you of these things. And so one of the, one of the things that we need to realize is that the Spirit wants to communicate to us not a sense of condemnation, not a sense of guilt, but a sense of wonderful, blessed pardon through a wonderful, merciful Savior. Now, we get to the fun part. 
verse 13. Which things we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spirituals with spirituals. Notice the New American Standard. I think the ESV does something, too. I couldn't tell you what. Spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Notice thoughts and words are in italics. There's a reason why they're in italics. Because Paul says something with spirituals and spirituals. So here is here is a great uh, exegetical puzzle, and uh, by the way, there are at least six ways that this passage can be construed. Okay. Um, one commentator says this is a most nettlesome problem. Uh, why do I point out that there are difficult texts? Um, well, one is to garner as much sympathy from you as I possibly can. Um, doing uh, the exegesis of God's word is hard work. So I need your prayers, right? I mean, if you just think that I go and open up a book of sermons and come out ready to preach to you, then you are... Diminished in your capacities. It's hard work, so you need to pray, right? But the other thing is just a reminder to us that not all scripture is equally clear. God inspired hard texts, as well as straightforward, clear texts. How do we know that God inspired hard texts? Well, what does Peter say about Paul's writings? Some things which our brother Paul wrote about are hard to understand. So I kind of take comfort in the fact that if Peter (laughs) had a little trouble understanding Paul, then, uh, you know, I'm in Peter's boat. Okay, so this is a tough text. Now, there, there, there are a few things that we know Paul's doing. So first thing is, is that Paul is now after expounding the way that the Spirit reveals the wisdom of God. So how does that happen? He knows the mind of God, and now he comes and he gladly makes known to us the things graciously given. Paul now is returning to his preaching of God's wisdom, all right? Which, of course, again, is the word of the cross. Now he's linking that specifically to the way that the Spirit works through him as an apostle. All right? Um, so I think you could say something like this. We, we preached, what we preach is, is, is certainly the wisdom of God, and what we preach is revealed by the Spirit. It's taught by the Spirit. All right? At least the bare minimum of what we can say. Gordon Fee says, the Spirit is thus key to everything. Paul's preaching, their conversion, and especially their understanding of the content of his preaching as the true wisdom of God. And so as Paul often does, he gives us a negative before he states the positive. Okay? So he says, not in words taught by human wisdom. So the things that we teach, the things that we speak, Paul says, are not words taught 
by human wisdom. I'd remind you of chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so Paul says, as, as, as we seek to, to communicate what the Spirit is communicating, we don't do it in words taught by human uh, wisdom, or the idea is not in speech that comes out of mere human cleverness. I think I mentioned this last week, but it's, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a burr under my saddle. And that is so much preaching today tries to be the kind of preaching that is relevant and cool and uses words and um, illustration that is simply designed to do nothing more than communicate to a, a, a worldly audience. Okay? All you have to do is watch so-called Christian television. I don't recommend it. Most of it is awful, okay? But even listening to Pilgrim Radio, notwithstanding, of course, you listen to Christian radio, and you listen to teaching, and you begin to realize that there is a, uh, there, there is a, first of all, there's an incredible dumbing down, right? Where you're just trying to find the least common denominator, but you're trying to dress it up in a way that just seems uh, it's more like a motivational speech than the ministry of God's word. I think the idea of uh, you know, motivational, inspirational speech is instead of preaching the straightforward word of God is an example of mere human wisdom. Paul says, we don't do that. He says this, though, but... In words of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, to spirituals, spirituals, interpreting, comparing, or bringing together. Now, here's, this is the crux of the problem for the passage. Uh, notice the word the NAS uses, combining, okay, combining. The word that Paul uses here is a relatively rare word, and, and it has three basic meanings. The first would be interpreting in terms of explaining something. That's what we mean when we interpret. We're explaining something. Um, the, the second would be comparing and this has the idea of actually bringing two things together and comparing them. The third possibility for this word, though, is to actually bring things together, to try to match or try to fit them together. So you can see, actually, from each of the three possible meanings of this word, you end up having um, three pretty different perspectives on what this phrase could mean. The other challenging part 
is that in, in the text, and I'm, I'm sorry to bore you with grammar. Actually, I'm not. I, I don't apologize for boring you with grammar. I take it as a badge of honor if you're bored because of grammar. It's better, though, if you're excited about grammar. In, in Greek, words have gender. You have masculine, feminine, or neuter. Okay? Sometimes the forms which identify the gender of the word are ambiguous. Okay? And what that means is that the words that Paul uses here can be either masculine or neuter. What that means is if it's neuter, it would be things pertaining to the spirit. If it was masculine, it would be to people of the spirit. So you can start to see the, 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 the combination with the three possibilities of the meaning of the word and then the, um, the, 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 the ambiguity of the gender of, of the word, you end up having incredible possibilities. And so let me just cut to the chase. And I, I think that what Paul is saying is, is this. Words taught of the spirit, that part's clear enough, which, of course, is going to be what? Ultimately, it's the gospel. It's the word of the cross. Okay? This, this has nothing, nothing to do with glossolalia. This has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. This has nothing to do with prophecy. This has nothing to do with utterances that are somehow supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit, words from the Spirit, is simply the gospel. It's the message of the cross. And so I think Paul says, words taught of the Spirit, that is the gospel. And then, then I think the way that it is, is to be translated would be this, explaining the things of the Spirit, okay? interpreting the things of the Spirit by means of words taught by the Spirit. Okay? In other words, in language that is appropriate to the message, which, of course, is in, in, in context is contrary to words of human wisdom. Okay? So I think that what Paul is simply bringing out here is that when we receive the Spirit, there is a sense in which the Spirit comes to make known to us the things which God has freely given. And Paul says, in those things, we actually speak to you. Those are the things that we're, we're preaching to you. And we're preaching them to you, not in words of human cleverness, but we are teaching these words of the Spirit. And we're, we're explaining, that is, we're interpreting. I think that's the best way to understand the word, is to explain or interpret the things of the Spirit by means of those words taught by the Spirit. Now, there's nothing esoteric about this. There's nothing that is otherworldly about this. Paul is simply saying that the things that the Spirit has taught us, we actually interpret those words that come from the Spirit using as it were, spiritual words, words of the Spirit, 
to explain to you what they mean. To adapt those words to your understanding. You have to understand that, that what Paul is doing is, is in a sense nothing less than what, than what God has done. So is God infinite? And the answer is absolutely. Is, is God transcendent and is he eternal? And is his mind incomprehensible? And the answer is absolutely yes. And what the Spirit of God does is the Spirit of God takes that which is in, in the mind, as it were, the heart of God and reveals it. But how, how in the world do you reveal the infinite, transcendent, eternal God. The Spirit of God must accommodate himself to our understanding. I mean, this, this actually should be really clear to us. What if, what if, um, uh, so who's, who's a really smart computer person here? Charlie, no, never mind. Um, let's see, really smart computer person. Um, uh, okay, Lou. All right, we'll just pick Lou. All right, uh, he's holding a handheld electronic device, so we'll pick him. Um, so, okay, so let's say you've got all the, you know, you've got a smartphone and you've got an operating system, and say I, I don't know much about any of this, and and let, you've got all of this terminology, right? Okay, um, you've got terminology that that relates to the speed and and this and that and the other thing. Okay, and so so you take Lou and then you 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 put him in a time capsule and you send him back to 1776 and there he is standing before the Continental Congress and he's now going to explain iPhones. And he's using all his technical terminology. And he says, I've got 4G. And they're looking at him like, what is, what's a phone? Right? What's a phone? You could actually take Lou and just drop him back to 1950. And people be like, what are you talking about? Right? So here's, here's the reality. If the spirit of God were just to come and just reveal straightforwardly the mind of God to us, it would be like us trying to understand something that was so far beyond us that we would not have a clue as to what he was talking about. And so what does the Spirit do? Calvin, Calvin says that God in the Scriptures lifts to us. He accommodates his words to our understanding. And so not only do you have, do you have God himself revealing himself through his spirit in, in, in spirit taught words, but those words are interpreted so that, so that we can understand them. And the Spirit of God comes and gives us understanding. So the words are accommodated, and then the Spirit of God who lives in us helps us to understand that accommodated word. Now, this is not to say that there are errors in the Bible or anything like that. The Bible is inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant in all that it affirms. But what it is to say is that the revelation of the mind of God comes to us in spirit-taught words which are interpreted. And we should be thankful for that. And so God opens our hearts and understands. Every once in a while, somebody will say... um, 
In fact, I was just talking to somebody last week and they were talking about when they used to come uh, years ago when we were on industrial way and they said, you know what, I, I started coming and, and this person was bringing me and I'd sit there and I'd listen to you and most of the time I wouldn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> you would say things and I'd be like, what is he talking about? He said, but there was, I understood enough that I felt my heart drawn And the more my heart was drawn and the more I listened, the more I understood. See, that's, that's by the way, what the Holy Spirit does. So he, he actually increases our understanding as we are increasingly exposed to the word. Okay. Some of you still don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Hang in there. So the deep things of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The deep things of God are absolutely incomprehensible. You understand that, as Calvin put it, the finite, that's us, cannot comprehend the infinite. There is a line that exists between the incomprehensible God, the infinite incomprehensible God, and us. And so that line between, as it were, creator and creature is only crossed by the Holy Spirit. The only way you begin to know the incomprehensible God is when the spirit of God begins to cross that line to make him known. Which means that you cannot know God all by yourself. You cannot know God on your, by your own logic, by the power of your own reason. You cannot know God because you read, uh, you read so many books. You cannot read, uh, you cannot know God just simply because you go out and look at Mount Hood. You cannot know God just simply because you go and feel the wind in your face and the wind beneath your wings or whatever nonsense. Okay. There's one way that you can know God. And that is when the spirit of God, who alone knows God, actually crosses that line and makes him known to you. And the spirit does this through divine revelation. So he does it through his chosen instruments who write scripture. And he also then does it by coming and opening our hearts. Paul prays that God would give us NAS, a spirit of wisdom. Now forget the spirit, the Holy Spirit. May God give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so when we pray for God to open eyes and to open hearts, this is what we're asking is that that the spirit of God would, would cross the line And make him known. Who do men say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist raised from the dead. But who do you say that I am? And then Peter, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. So I would say the job of the expositor is to explain the passage, which is made up of words which are given by the Spirit. But the ultimate explainer is not the expositor. It's the Spirit of God. And so when the Spirit reveals the depths of God's heart and God's wisdom, what do you know? You know the cross. You know the gospel. You know the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's the deep thing of God. And the Spirit loves to reveal that to us. And may he do it in increasing measure. May he do it for those, for those of you whose hearts are not open and you, you, you hear the words but you don't understand the message. May God open your heart just as he opened Lydia's and reveal himself to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and we thank you for the way in which you reveal yourself to us. Father, we would have never come up with these ways. And yet your ways are so much better. They're so much higher than our ways. Thank you for your spirit who delights to reveal your wisdom to us. And we pray, Father, that we would see that truly knowing you finds its sum and substance in knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.